city of gold. This could be our destiny, our fate. Miguel, if I believed in fate, I wouldn't be playing with loaded dice. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Ian, did you ever do this? Did you ever go to like a museum and put on your overalls and go out there and pay them for gold? I value my time <laughs> way like, too much for that. This is a real thing, man. People still do this. I know. Over the course of the history of the internet, there are these zeitgeists of like movements of places that you can go to find incredible opportunities on the internet. You know, I'm thinking of things like, say in the early days, you remember eBay, right? I do. I still use it. Yeah. Like the people who got in early on that, like it was good for them. And like me and you both have a lot of mutual friends who found out about affiliate marketing early in the day. And the people who got those great affiliate marketing offers, you know, back in 2005, 2004, whatever, they had the right timing. It worked out really good for them. And I think what we're seeing in our community now, as of 2016, is that the people that have got into the Amazon ecosystem are really seeing a ton of success. It just really seems to be happening right now. It's like in the zeitgeist. Yeah, it harkens back, I think, to the days of eBay where people were making ridiculous amounts of money on this new platform because they took the time to understand how it works. And so today, we're going to talk with a couple of people that have taken the time to understand how Amazon works, and they're going to share with you their tips, tricks, and tools to make it work for you. This is an interesting format for us because we don't often have like a discussion panel. Really curious to hear if you enjoy this format. We'd be happy to do more of it. We actually got a comment on last week's episode. It was on our blog and someone said, one more thing regarding this week's episode about Amazon, which we're about to roll. Whoever you interview, could you please ask them some questions about profitability? I think that this is a great question. A lot of times we talk about people that are making ridiculous or what sounds like ridiculous amounts of money, $100,000, $250,000 a month. Right. And this person is curious about profitability which we all are. As you know, Dan, because we were in the business, physical products can be relatively difficult to manufacture and deliver. And the margins can be quite thin depending on what you're selling. And a lot of people that are selling on Amazon are reselling other people's products. And so physical products are a cash intensive business. And the question is valid, which is how do you make margin selling these products? Yeah. I mean, in order to make money on Amazon, you got to put some skin in the game. You got to put some money into the machine. And I think that that's interesting. We will touch on that. And if you guys feel like there's any questions that we didn't ask or things you'd like to hear from our panel, just let us know in the comments and we'll do our best to get back to you. That's at tropicalmba.com slash Amazon Gold. Okay, so we're not only going to talk about profitability this week, but we're going to talk about knowledge and tips, including what specific price points to aim for, why innovation is the way to go and some pitfalls to avoid, and also some product ideas. Pretty cool. So, Ooh, yeah, it's real. People giving away Amazon product ideas. I like it. Is it cool for me to say that your girlfriend, she sells on Amazon, right? She does. And no, I will not tell anybody what she sells. <laughs> That's the thing about Amazon. If you tell people what niche you're in, they listen to podcasts like this and they blow it out and then it's not good anymore. It's like a Masonic club, right? Like you guys got a secret handshake. It's <laughs> <laughs> not telling anybody what's going on. <laughs> I had a really good time talking to our panelists and learning from them today. So I just want to give them a big thanks for coming to the podcast and sharing their knowledge with us. So without further ado, the first question I ask is that our panelists would introduce themselves. 
right, so I'm Greg Mercer, and I appreciate you guys having me on. I started selling on Amazon about three years ago. Just within the past like 18 months, I've gotten into the private label type sales model that I know we're going to discuss. To date, I sell a few hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff on Amazon each month, and I'm also the founder of a product research software for Amazon sellers called Jungle Scout. I'm Brad DeGraw. Just like Greg, I make stuff to sell on Amazon, both in the U.S. and in Asia. We sell our own products, we help other people do their launches, and then we have, of course, an Amazon course. What's the name of the course? It's Rich Dad's Amazon Cash Flow Blueprint. (laughs) (laughs) So we teamed up with Robert Kiyosaki. You guys both didn't mention what products you sell on Amazon. That's pretty par for the course for Amazon sellers, yeah? Yeah, most people don't disclose their specific brands or their specific products. We do sexual wellness, we do home and kitchen, we do outdoors, fitness, mom products, baby products, and survival products. And I want to make a distinction there for you guys. Greg, you mentioned wholesale. Essentially, what I think you meant was you were selling other people's products. You were buying them wholesale from the manufacturers, and now both you and Brad have developed your own products in what you're selling on Amazon. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, Ian. So, you know, when I say wholesale, I'm talking about buying from well-known established brands, say like Black & Decker or something, then reselling that on Amazon on existing listings, which there's other sellers on. So that's different as opposed to creating our own brands with our own labels. I'm Carrie Masters, and my agency, Bobsled Marketing, helps crowdfunded brands to launch their products on Amazon. And just like Greg and Brad, I have my own physical product brand too in the DIY space. Kiri, could you let us know a little bit about why you initially started working on Amazon? Like what attracted you to the platform? I know that there's a lot of people listening to the show that are curious about it, but haven't really done anything on Amazon yet. Yeah. So initially with my own brand, I was pretty resistant to getting on Amazon because I didn't perceive it as a platform that would help to build my brand. And I think that a lot of consumers have the same perception of Amazon, or at least maybe a couple of years ago, that it was the place to buy cheap stuff. And I don't believe that to be the case at all. After I launched my products on Amazon and just saw a massive uptake pretty much straight away. So I saw the value of it as a seller pretty early. Before we get deeper, Guys, for the noob here, it'd be cool if we could get some like of our vocabulary straight for the rest of the conversation. Brad, I'm curious, could you walk me through what Amazon FBA is, if you feel comfortable with that? I hear everybody saying, oh, you got to do Amazon FBA, FBA. What does that mean? So FBA stands for Fulfillment by Amazon. What that means is you're selling products on Amazon and your inventory is in Amazon's warehouse. So Amazon controls the whole fulfillment process. As the orders come in, they pull it off a shelf, they put it in a box, tape up the box, and ship it to the customer. So you can sell on Amazon and fulfill your own merchandise, or you can use Amazon FBA where they fulfill the orders. So this represents a breakthrough because basically you don't have to manage a warehouse anymore? Yeah, it's terrible, terrible low-level work. I mean, you're lifting heavy boxes and running to the post office, so Amazon can do it much more efficiently than we can. And my favorite part about FBA is when things happen, inventory gets lost or damaged or destroyed, they pay you for it. So if you were running your own warehouse, Ian, you probably know this, things happen. And it's your problem if it's in your warehouse. But if Amazon does it, they'll pay you for that 
lost inventory. Yeah, I know people that celebrate when Amazon loses their <laughs> yeah. inventory because they pay the retail <laughs> price on it, whereas you just bought yeah. it for wholesale. So a couple of years ago, Amazon started offering this FBA service where basically they warehouse your goods for you. And that made it so companies that basically ship products can essentially cut your overhead to zero because it's literally cents on the dollar to store this inventory with them. And also there's you know a nice little interface for you to communicate with them because they have this amazing infrastructure. And then on top of it now, you can actually sell on their platform. Also interesting, it used to be the place where we would go to get real honest reviews about products. <laughs> There's been a lot of developments in that space. One of the interesting things that's happened over the last, I'd say, year or two is that sellers like yourself are buying reviews, essentially. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I don't think the term buying reviews is too prevalent. Like, I don't think there's many people, at least anymore, that are like going to five or spending $5 or whatever, or whoever else, and, you know, actually purchasing reviews. A promotional strategy that is really popular uh, among Amazon sellers would be, especially when you launch a product, to give a product away at a discount, whether it's, you know, 30, 40, 50, 90% off, whatever, to someone who's willing to leave a review in exchange for a deep discount. So you give them a coupon, say, hey, here's a coupon for 90% off. All I ask for in return is you leave an honest review, which, as we all know, is you know really essential for making sales on Amazon. So nobody wants to buy anything on Amazon that doesn't have any reviews. Right. So it's a strategy to get yourself up in the rankings, some say. I mean, we're not exactly sure how the rankings work on Amazon, as we're not exactly sure how it works on Google, too. But we've got some good ideas. And some of us think that rankings are dependent on reviews. And there are these sites now that you can essentially exchange reviews for a discounted purchase price of the item. And that's one of the ways that you rank your product page, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So another noob question, if you guys will indulge me, is if we were having this podcast in like two 2001, we'd probably be talking about eBay. In 2005, we'd be talking about like affiliate blogging. You see where I'm coming with this is part of the reason we're here talking is that I can't shake a stick in any direction without someone talking about Amazon to me and how well they're doing on it. Is this an opportunity that's going to continue to exist? Are people too late if they're just listening to this podcast now? Is this just something in the zeitgeist right now? Yeah, it's become a pretty popular endeavor for people that have never even had any other kind of experience with online businesses before. And there are tons of podcasts out there. There's a lot of blogs out there that is teaching you exactly how to start a private label Amazon business and make tons of money. You have to stop there and describe what private label means. So private labeling is where you contract with a factory or a wholesale manufacturer and brand their products with your own brand. You may make some design changes to the product or maybe just put your logo on it. So this microphone that I'm holding, I could put like a tropical thing on it and then sell it on Amazon, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's going to be a whole life cycle to this, just like there was with eBay. There is sort of that stuff within easy reach now, which is reselling stuff with another brand on it. The next level is private labeling, putting your own label on a product that you don't make a whole lot of design changes to and you order in low quantities. And that is what is becoming really popular now because it's still within easy reach for a lot of people. And there's a relatively low investment in that compared to hiring a designer, getting your CAD designs going out and starting from scratch with a manufacturer with a totally brand new design. Do you guys think this is the easiest way to make money online? 
I'd have to say right now that it's the best opportunity if you know you're looking to quit your job today, make some good cash flow so you could go start traveling or become location independent or whatever. Like the complete Wild Wild West days are over, I think. You know, no longer can you buy spatulas for a quarter and sell them for twenty bucks and sell a hundred a day. But there are still a ton of good opportunities. I'm still like launching products myself and you know, a lot of other people I know are doing so as well. Right now we're recording this at the beginning of twenty sixteen. Right now it's still an excellent opportunity in my opinion. Where are we at the life cycle? On eBay, you know, there's basically power sellers now, right? I mean, there's individuals that sell things and you can still buy from them. But then when you go to buy these parts that are mass manufactured and that everybody knows about, the only people that are successful on eBay selling those items are professionals. Do you feel like it's gotten to that level on Amazon? No, not yet. I think this is the smartest model, not just making a Me Too product, like Greg said, but actually innovating, making those design changes like Kiri said, you're going to have to innovate. You can't just go to Alibaba and take another Me Too product. You're going to have to make a small change and take on a little more liability. Those are going to be the people who stick around and make it to the next level. So there's something interesting about that, which is you have a real opportunity on Amazon to build a brand where on eBay, it doesn't seem like that was as much of an opportunity. eBay is the place where you're going to get the lowest cost anything. People aren't looking for innovation. They're just looking for commodities. So Amazon is a more sophisticated type of buyer. They want things right now and they want nice things. eBay, they just want anything to do the job. So eBay is more utilitarian and Amazon has more appreciation for design and a higher finished good. In my perspective, you could sell something with no box or something even used on eBay. That's not possible on Amazon. Do you guys find that the innovators then have success in niches that they're passionate about, that they understand the products? Or are people just doing these little hack tweaks, you know, like I'm going to put it in cool packaging and put it up kind of thing? I think it's both. Sometimes you just need to fix the packaging. You know, if it's a fragile, breakable thing and people are selling it in a poly bag versus a nice box, put it in a box. Sometimes it's so simple. It's just the packaging. What do you guys think about this innovation point? Like people might get hung up on that idea. Oh man, I'm not a product person. So how can I innovate on a product? Innovating on a product is a good, you know, I'd say like a longer term strategy. In my opinion, you don't absolutely have to do this. Like if you're trying to get started today, you want the simplest way in. You can just do, you know, a copycat product and try to, you know, take away half of someone's sales. I think there is enough room in the market to do that right now. You know, if you're listening to this podcast a year from now, that might not be the case so much. But just to give you like a few ideas, for instance, like I publicly launched a product. It's uh, like bamboo marshmallow sticks. And for this particular product, all we did was... Around uh, a campfire, you mean? Yeah, around a campfire. The longest ones on Amazon were 30 inches long. So I made mine a little bit longer. Mine are 36 inches long. Because a few people were complaining that you know their hands were getting high. It was too close to the fire. And then the other thing I did is I just put 10% more in a pack. So my competitors had 100 in the pack. I put 110 in the pack. So I have a pack of 110 bamboo marshmallow skewers. You can put a hot dog or a marshmallow on them. I mean, they're selling great. Like the first month, you know, we sold like 300 units. Now we're selling like 15 to 18 a day. These would be like the little types of hacks, you know, you can think about. You don't have to think like, okay, how am I going to prove the insulation of this water bottle? It can be like simple things like this. Or another thing I've done in the past was I had a product that got a whole bunch of bad reviews. Well, I hadn't purchased it yet, but it had plastic buckles on it and the plastic buckles were breaking. So all I did was just replace them or just had the factory start putting on metal buckles. And now I'm selling them for literally twice as much as my like nearest competitor who has plastic buckles. And it cost me like 50 cents extra. And I get like all five-star reviews. 
Kiri, you work with a lot of innovators, I know, specifically. So it sounds like every personality type can have their way on this platform. Yeah, absolutely. I deal with a lot of innovators, people that have inventions, and this might be something that they worked on for three years. That's been a passion project. Other people are more interested in getting some quick hits some light runs on the board so that they can go and invest in deepening their brands. It does definitely accommodate a lot of different approaches. When I heard uh, you speaking, I, it reminded me of like the way a stockbroker thinks a little bit. Like it almost sort of reminds me of a trading mindset that you're going in there and you're looking for things that are undervalued. Like people don't even value this packaging. You make that tweak and then you get the arbitrage. Yeah. So like these people that are like really good innovators have spent like years on these products. They would hate someone like me because like I'll just make like one simple little tweak, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I don't really care that much about the product. I can't tell you the last time I roasted a marshmallow, like really small stuff like that. And then start selling a lot better. And the interesting thing about Amazon is that you can go in and hopefully read the real comments about what people like and don't like and then change that product to accommodate them. And so there's no secret sauce here, right, guys? You're just going into the Amazon listing and, and reading feedback. Is that correct? Yeah. And what's so cool about it is, you know, like a few years ago, these big companies would spend tons and tons of money on market research, you know, finding out what their customers like and don't like about their products. And now it's like, just go on there and read 100 one-star reviews and you don't know exactly what's wrong with these products. Someone you know, can do that in an afternoon for free. It's really cool. It seems like people use Amazon to discover products as well. Like, hmm, mm. I'd like to buy something for my house. I wonder what they have on there. And so then they can sort of find your product there. Is that fair to say? I think so. Especially with the, you know, they show you like customers who purchase this also purchase that. They're like, you know, the industry leader at upselling and once people get on their website, actually, you know, getting them to purchase goods. I mean, I know it happens to me all the time. You know, you go in there looking to buy one thing and all of a sudden you have like six items in your cart. They're great at that. If you guys ask me like how to become a professional blogger, make money online, I might be able to like lay out like kind of a year one, year two, year three. Is there like sort of a sequence that people go through with making money with Amazon? Sure. So say today, Dan, you're looking to launch an item on Amazon. So I would A, recommend to do a private label type item like we're talking about. So you're going to have a factory probably like in China manufacture this, stick the tropical MBA white label on it and start selling it on Amazon. So you want to go out and find you know products that have good demand yet not too much competition. So that usually means not a very mature niche. You want to look for something, you know, I usually recommend a price point that isn't too high where people are still willing to make impulse purchases and, you know, don't care too much about what the brand is. An example there is, you know, like I'm not going to buy a laptop from a brand I've never heard of before, but I'll buy like something cheap. So I usually say like 20 to 50 bucks, you know, the $20 bottom end leaves enough room to make a good profit in there. Cause you know, you have to sell a lot of items if it's only a dollar profit to make any money, right? You want something that's plenty of demand yet not too competitive. And then also if you're getting these manufactured, the easiest way is to go for kind of like simple products, relatively small, so you can ship them by air, things that don't have a lot of QC worries, you know, not many moving parts, that type of thing. So those are all like good products if, you know, if you're just starting out trying to sell on Amazon today. It's the Goldilocks problem, finding the thing that's just right, doesn't cost too much, doesn't cost too little, is light. Like Greg said, you want to be in a niche that has enough demand and has enough volume that you can see from existing sellers and existing products. If I'm going to go after one of these lower end products, say maybe 30 to 50 bucks sounds great to me, Greg. How much money do I need to get into that game? 
I'd say minimum, it'd be tough to start out with under 100 units, I think, if you're going to like start by giving away some product, if you're pretty serious about it. That being said, if you pick a pretty like good market, you're going to sell 100 pretty quick. So, you know, most of the time I start with more than that, but let's say 100, if it retails for 25 bucks, you know, to actually land it, maybe it's going to cost you $7. So you mean get it to Amazon's warehouse by landing? Yes. So, you know, include uh, manufacturing costs. We're shipping it from China to here. We're mailing it into Amazon. So let's say seven or eight bucks. I guess that only puts you at seven or $800, but then you have to think you're going to lose a little bit of money of giveaway if you're paying a package designer. I personally probably wouldn't try if I had less than $1,000. I mean, I guess it's like a lot of things, but the more money you have, a little bit easier it's going to be, you know, to get started. If you do end up selling two, three, 400 a month or whatever, you know, you're going to always be running out of stock if you're only ordering 100 at a time and so forth. So Carrie pointed out one of the biggest drawbacks to selling on Amazon it is relatively capital intensive. You can start slow, but you know if you're trying to replace your job income or whatever, it helps to have some cash. In capital intensive meaning also the more your revenue scales, the more money you're going to have to put into your inventory. So you're always going to have a certain amount of money wrapped up in your inventory as you grow. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, I mean, most people would want to reinvest all their profits back into more inventory or another product or so forth. So it's not, I'd say like the best way, you know, to try to make 3000 bucks next month. But if you can think ahead of that, you know, six months or a year or whatever, then I think it's a good plan. I want to talk just for a minute about product listing strategies. And so we started to touch on this. And essentially, if I understand correctly, Greg, you don't actually own the product listing page on Amazon. And so you can be selling a similar product or exactly the same product as someone else on Amazon, but there's only one product listing page. How does this work? Yeah, so that's one of the huge draws of private labeling. So again, if we're selling that Black & Decker drill that we're talking about, if I was to sell it and I was to go on Amazon and list it, there would be an existing listing on Amazon for that. And there might be five or 10 other sellers already selling this product. So then it's a race, you know, to see who can sell it the cheapest or whatever else Amazon uses in their algorithm to determine, you know, they rotate sellers through the listing. We call it the buy box. You know, if you own the buy box, when someone clicks the buy now button on Amazon, it goes to that seller. So one of the huge draws about private labeling is since we are selling something that we're manufacturing ourselves, then we can create the own listing. We're going to be the only seller on that listing. So then you have a lot more control over the pricing, you know, you're willing to do more work on your listing to optimize it. Maybe you're willing to give away units so you can get some initial reviews for your launch strategy and so on. So that's one of the huge draws to privately. That's like the largest advantage to it on Amazon. We talk about this issue like founder fit, you know, like what type of person is uniquely suited to have a successful Amazon business in your view? From my perspective, it's someone who has a little bit of a team attitude because I have a team and I couldn't do everything without the team. So you need someone who is what we call a quick start, someone who's really excited to do the research and get something going, but also to hand it off to someone who will complete all the mundane tasks of evaluating 40 suppliers, of following up and doing all the little checklist items. Do you feel like the average founder then would have many, many products? Or are you seeing people with one or two products that are making a living? It gets addictive. You're going to be someone who probably goes after several markets. Ideally, it'd be someone who stays in one market. I love racehorses, for example. Boom, that would be your thing. But you're probably going to find 
oh, I love the dad market. Oh, I love the swimming market. I love all these different markets. And you're going to dominate this one and that one and the next one in a series. My thought, and maybe this is just me being a conventional old guy or whatever, like I'm always thinking like, how can I get my customers off of Amazon and like into my stuff, like my mailing list, my brand? How much interaction is there if you're maybe have a e-commerce store right now? Should you be listing your things on Amazon as well? And can you pull your customers off of Amazon into your brand? It's a really good point. And I think as much as we've framed Amazon FBA as this amazing platform, there are a few drawbacks. And one of them is that you don't own the customer, Amazon owns the customer. And you don't get their email address. You don't get any right or ability to remarket to them, at least digitally. And a lot of Amazon customers buy on Amazon because they like Amazon and they don't necessarily have a lot of loyalty to your brand necessarily at all. That is one of the challenges. On that same note, another challenge is fulfillment costs. And although it's a very simple model to have Amazon do all your inventory storage and fulfillment for you, some brands may find that they can get cheaper fulfillment services elsewhere, especially if they're moving a lot of product. If they had a choice between Amazon doing the fulfillment and their 3PL, their third-party logistics provider doing the fulfillment, they would rather funnel it through their own store. That's what you kind of have to contend with as a brand. If you're looking at a multi-channel strategy and you have an e-commerce store, maybe you even have brick-and-mortar retailers that are carrying your product and you have Amazon, you have to figure out which channel you ultimately want to direct people through. Maybe Amazon is one of those ways, but it's not the most profitable channel for you. One of the things that you alluded to is there's no way to remarket to them digitally. And so that's one reason to do custom packaging, right? Is because you can kind of slip in your URL or whatever you want to do in your package and send that out to them and hopefully remarket to them and have some kind of strategy to get your product through what you called multi-channels, which is I want to sell to them through Amazon. I want to sell to them through my e-commerce store, through physical mailers, whatever it might be, but some diversification into your business. And I think we can all agree that in terms of a long-term strategy, we're not all sure what Amazon's going to do. And so it makes sense to kind of hedge our bets in some way. Do you agree with that, Greg? Yeah. Ideally, of course, we'd be able to get all of our customers off Amazon. You know, I think it's just <laughs> it's trending towards more and more people only want to use Amazon. So in my opinion, just take advantage of the opportunity that's there. You know, yeah, of course, I'd rather have them go through my e-commerce store or any other way that they become, you know, my customers. But it's easier said than done. And yeah, so I mean, that's a plus side and a drawback of Amazon. You know, really easy to get started. They can jumpstart your brand, your business right away because there's already all these customers waiting. You know, you don't have to wait months to work on your SEO or, you know, learn to send paid traffic to something and so forth. So, you know, there's definitely pluses and minuses of it. 40% of product searches start on Amazon. So you want to be where people have their credit cards saved in the system and they're already buying, of course. Where are people screwing this up? I'm sure you guys got like friends and relatives coming out of the woodwork saying, guys, I just want to model your success. What are the problems with the people who aren't making this work? Where do you see the common hangups? If you didn't study a market, if you just went in with a me too, I'm going to do silicone barbecue gloves because I heard someone was making tons of money on that. You're just chasing products. You're going to fail. Another one is getting hooked up with a supplier that's shady. Maybe they screw you on a bait and switch. Maybe the materials aren't the same quality. Maybe they don't ship it or the last half of the shipment is rejects, but they gave them to you anyway. Those are some of the most scary places to fail. I would say also 
If you overestimate the size of a market, you could be in for a rude shock when you can't generate enough sales. There's not enough people searching for that type of product on Amazon. And that's where these tools come in handy that have come out in the last couple of years. So Greg's tool, Jungle Scout, is very helpful for doing product research and seeing what an existing market size might look like. There are keyword search tools that help you see what kind of terms people are using on Amazon. And then the other big challenge that sellers might face is not understanding Amazon's pricing model and the fact that you're going to be paying a referral fee for the benefit of being on Amazon's platform. That's in most categories 15%. And then if you're using FBA, then you'll have the fulfillment costs of shipping your product to the warehouse, storing it there, then Amazon has all its order handling and pick and pack fees. If you're not careful with your margins and you don't understand the full pricing model, then you can really get eaten up with all of the extra fees. So the way that I've seen the most people fail is going after a market that's too competitive. So if you go after a really mature market, like if we use the silicone gloves like Brad was talking about, if you search those on Amazon right now, everyone has like a thousand or two thousand reviews or whatever. These guys have been selling for a long time. Yeah, sure, like the number one spot selling thousands every month, but that's just way too competitive. You'll never get onto like that first page of results to make sales or even the second. If you were to try to, you'd have to like give away thousands of units to get these initial sales and reviews and stuff. If I were just starting today, I would actually go for a market that is not very competitive at all, even if it didn't have quite as much demand as I was looking for. Maybe I'm only going to sell 100 units a month, you know, maximum in this particular market, but it's one where all my competitors say only have like 15, 20, 30 reviews. That's something I think that's almost like anyone could get into today. You know, if if you're happy making 100 sales a month, you know, which, you know, might be $1,000 or something, which would be a great start at replacing your income. That's the type of market that be easy to get into and it's a lot less likely to fail. You know, we're talking about ways to fail. I want to talk about minimum viable product listing page because there's a lot of things that you need to do to be successful selling products on Amazon, right? So you got to make sure that your URL is a certain way. You got to make sure that your title tags are a certain way, your images. So just give me a quick rundown of what the minimum viable is, how many reviews I have to have to get started, those kinds of things. Yeah. So the really cool thing about the Amazon product listings is you can always go back and tweak stuff. So, you know, I wouldn't suggest for anyone to get like hung up or like not get started because you're worried about this. You know, you can show, I think it's like, depending on the category, they'll show like five to eight photos. You want really high quality images so that when you hover over them, it zooms in. You know, we have five bullet points on there. Again, you want to stick as many keywords as relevant for your product in there. The general consensus is longer titles are better just because they have more keywords in there. Below that is a description you can write. Kind of general SEO practices. Like we were saying earlier, we don't know exactly how Amazon you know ranks this stuff. So keep in mind that you want keywords in there that are relevant for everything. Other than that, just use what seems to me kind of like common sense. You don't want photos that look like they were taken out in your garage. You want to answer any questions a user would have about an item. So you know, make sure you give the dimensions, what the product's good for, what it's made out of, all that kind of stuff. But like I was saying, the really cool thing about it is you can always tweak your listing later on you know, to try to improve your conversions. So I put up a product listing page for a white label product that I developed and it's in um, medium to moderate, I'd say like competition, right? Like other people are selling similar products, but I want to, I feel like there's an opportunity to get in this game. How many reviews do I have to have to kind of be relevant on the first or second page? Something like that. 
As a general rule of thumb, it seems like you almost kind of rank a little bit higher than whoever you have more than reviews for. So like if the top five results, you know, there's a couple of guys in there that have like 20 or 30 reviews, then I would start out trying to get those 20 or 30 reviews. You know, if the top five results, the minimum is like 100 reviews, then you should probably be going for that. But then again, that's probably not like a market that I would get into. I don't completely buy into the massive number of reviews strategy. I believe it's absolutely necessary to get some reviews on there in order to create a credible product listing. And you think about your own purchasing behavior too, and you use Amazon as a proxy, maybe even when you go into Best Buy, what kind of rating does this laptop have compared to that one? So I think it's really important to get the reviews, but not to sacrifice quality of reviews for a number of reviews. And it's pretty easy to tell when you're sifting through reviews that a bunch of people got a product for free and that was the only reason why they wrote a positive review about it. And that's kind of marginalizing any kind of giveaway strategy. It's important to get things started, but maybe I would think that 15 reviews at a minimum is kind of required, especially before you start doing a lot of paid ads to get traffic to your listing. You know, something magic happens at 20 reviews. I don't know if it's a technical thing, but our conversions get much better and the quality of traffic just goes up at 20. So maybe it's humans, like, that's fingers and toes, that's a lot. Or maybe it's a bot thing. So Mm. 20 reviews is our magic number out the gate. Kiri, you just opened up a floodgate for me. Are you guys, like, Facebooking this stuff? Or, like, is that a big thing? Or are you just staying in the Amazon ecosystem? So Amazon has its own PPC platform. It's called Sponsored Product Ads. So you can advertise your product alongside and, and target specific keywords, too. So you can target keywords that you know convert really well, that the ads platform is pretty basic. It's easy to get started. It's also easy to lose a lot of money. The ads platform within Amazon can drive really good results for sellers. Greg, are you using paid traffic to get traffic to your listings? Only PPC inside of Amazon. I never try to send any external traffic. In my opinion, the biggest limiting factor of us entrepreneurs are the hours in a day. If you spend the same amount of hours just looking for new products or maybe trying to optimize your listings a little bit further or whatever, it's much better spent than trying to drive outside traffic, in my opinion. Of course, I do use the PPC inside Amazon. It works really well. It's really simple. You know, Even if you have no paid traffic experience before, it's not like Google or Facebook or whatever where there's tons of options. You know, It's pretty basic. For the most part, you just choose your keywords. Brad, you were mentioning something magical happens at 20 reviews. What further would you identify as something that signifies a really interesting niche? So I actually have a spreadsheet that we use. If you want, I'll give you the link. You can give it to the listeners. So we have like a product opportunity evaluator that goes through like the quality of the manufacturers, the competition, the emotions of the market. So we look at a little bit of everything, but just kind of a Cliff Notes version. The smaller, the better. So if we can put a ton of them in a small box, that's much better than shipping pallets and pallets of inventory. You know, we like the higher price points. Greg mentioned 20 to 50, which is a great market. But even the 50 to 100 and beyond 100, some of our best stuff sells over 250 bucks. So there is a market for the higher end stuff. So let the data tell you. So we have a whole metric that we let the data tell us what's the difference between a great idea and an awesome idea. But the main thing is emotions. The more emotions our market has, the more traffic our competition has, and the more money that they have, the better. And I like to see one sophisticated competitor and no more than that. 
So one really sharp guy, great. He proves the market. He shows that being smart pays. But I don't want to go after 10 smart guys. And when you say sophisticated seller, you're talking about you three, obviously. So when you come across another Brad online, it's pretty easy to tell, right? When there's a sophisticated listing because they've optimized their product page. It's all the things that Greg talked about, right? In terms of what your product listing needs to look like. As soon as you spot that, you think, hmm, this person knows what they're doing. Is that right? Yeah. One person's great. If we're going to have to compete with a dozen sharks, then that's not as much fun. Like Greg said, here's your time to find something else. So guys, we really appreciate you sharing all this info with the audience. Do you guys have any like parting shots or tips or things that you could imagine that there's people listening to this thinking, my business kind of sucks or I can't really get started. <laughs> I, you know, No one's reading my blog or no one's coming to my woo shop. And so <laughs> they're thinking about going and doing this right now. So what are some things that you guys know that you want to share with them? Yeah, I think that it's important to not underestimate the amount of capital that you might need to get started. So if you think about beyond samples, you're placing a minimum order from a factory potentially. Maybe if you're making any tweaks, then you'll need to pay for, like Brad said, a product packaging designer to come in. And then you'll want to have some stock reserved for giving away units in exchange for reviews. You want to have some money aside for running PPC traffic to your listing. It's not a quick and cheap place to get started if this is your first time around the block. I've got a question for Brad and for Greg. What percentage of first products do you think fail for new sellers? Do you think that most people get it right their first time around or a good percentage of people fail with their first product? It's the bell curve. So if you hold up your hand five, you're going to have one rock star out of five products. You're going to have one total dud. And then you're going to have three that are a base hit or a double. So more than half the time, you'll make money, but it's nothing to brag about. About one out of five, 20% of the time, you make more money and you sell more volume than you thought possible. So that's what we're seeing. There is a certain amount of people that you know don't do well their first time. I don't know exactly what it is, but I guess the kind of cool thing about it is you are purchasing assets in inventory, which you can probably sell at some price. You know, maybe it's not the price you wanted. I think what's cool about you know, Dan, if you go and spend a thousand bucks on those first hundred units, and say you got into a, a niche that there's just no demand for really, well, you can probably drop your price to a point where you know you're a lot cheaper than anyone else, so you're selling you know to maybe at least make your money back on your inventory then you learned a lot from it. And that's one of the kind of the cool things about it, you know, whereas I was going out and developing software, spent $20,000 to develop a program and didn't do well. You don't have, you know, like a hard asset there that you can resell probably. That's a great question, Kiri. Could you tell me an example of a product that failed and why it failed? Yeah. So like a failure to me would usually be that the ROI isn't where I wanted it for me to continue investing my cash into it. My cash would be better in a different product. The ROI I shoot for on all my products is 100%. So if I land a product for 10 bucks, I want to make 10 bucks profit on it. When you talk about your ROI, return on investment, there's a lot of reasons why it needs to be 100%. But a lot of those reasons are specific to you. And this is the reason why you can go in and undercut some of your competition, right? Because they need to make a 200% ROI because they need to reinvest in other products or infrastructure or whatnot. So I just want to point out that it's not always the case that you need to make 100%, but that's what you find that works in your business, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. What about you guys? Do you guys have rules of thumb, Kiri and Brad, in terms of what kind of margins you're looking for? I don't, to be honest. I see it's a lot more challenging when your margins are slim. And again, you don't properly understand the cost structure of selling on Amazon. And then when unexpected things happen or things don't go the way that you plan, it can mean that you're taking a big hit. But in terms of a percentage, I don't have any suggestions there. We do 5 to 7x. So Greg mentioned landed cost. 
So if it's $10 all in, uh, manufacturing, package, shipping into Amazon's warehouse, we want to sell that product anywhere from $50 to $100. That's steeper than a lot of folks, but we're at the point where we can be very selective on our products. I noticed that no one mentioned the cost of warehousing in Amazon into their cost. And maybe you guys do factor that, but it's just so low that no one even cares. Is that true? It's nickels. <laughs> There's a big surcharge if it's in there for more than six months. You've got to watch your turn times. So Kiri gave a great parting shot. I'm curious if Brad or Greg, you guys got anything parting shot or a piece of advice or something that you've picked up along the way? Yeah, mine is you can do this. You know, I started with no training, no tools. The only thing I had was motivation. So once you make up your mind to be successful, whether you're in Amazon or you're off of Amazon doing something else, make up your mind first and just be determined. Learn, read. There's tons of free resources. You don't have to buy expensive tools and expensive training. Just put together a budget of failure of what it costs to learn. Anything to add, Greg? I'd like to add a few kind of hard numbers. So, you know, I used to listen to like these podcasts like this and it was kind of like big picture ideas. And it's like, okay, how do I like actually get started or what am I actually looking for? Let me give, you know, the listeners my rule of thumb. If they're actually looking for a product to sell on Amazon, I'd be looking for a product that is going to be selling. I like to see something that sells 3000 units per month in the particular niche. I also want to see someone in the top five results who has, say, under 50 reviews. And in the top 10 results, I'd be looking for, let's say, three sellers who had under 50 reviews. And that, to me, signifies like not too competitive of a niche, something that I can actually compete in. I also don't want to see multiple pages of the same product. You know, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, okay, I want to start going out and looking for a product that I could be selling, those are like real life numbers that I'm using, you know, to look for products. Yeah, so we had a manufacturing business, and it's funny, like a lot of the things that the Amazon panelists were talking about are things that we did. So do you think that this is how we would go about doing things if we were to start today? I think Amazon is an amazing channel. Obviously, you have access to so many customers immediately. But one of the things, when I talk to everybody that's selling products on Amazon, pretty much all of them want to be diversified off of Amazon eventually. So they want to be able to build a brand and then sell through other channels that aren't Amazon. And it makes a lot of sense because Amazon owns your customers. And I think ultimately, if you want to have a long-standing business that can produce revenues for years to come and something that's a sellable asset, you have to get it off somebody else's platform. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like easy come, easy go. Yep. If you play with fire, you know, it could go one way or the other. But I do think it's an amazing way. I love the idea of how you can test product ideas, how you can find that product market fit pretty fast. And then, yeah, you could build a brand and diversify outside of the platform. So it's interesting to see where where everyone on the call will take it. Thanks again to all our panelists for dropping by. If you'd like to hear us do a panel on another topic, we'd love to hear your suggestions. This one will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Amazon Gold. This week in particular, we'll have a lot of helpful links to the things our panelists have mentioned. So do check it out. Next week, boss man, I'm very excited about what we have in store. I got the chance to interview my favorite blogger of all time. Wow. Who's that? I'm such a blog fan that for me, it's like just another sport, you know, and I've got a favorite one. His name is Venkat Rao, and he writes a wonderful blog named ribbonfarm.com. 
If you're interested in reading about the future of organizations, how power dynamics work in corporations and in companies like ours, I think it's an absolute must-read blog. It's extremely fascinating, and next week's show will be a real treat if you go and do some, not homework, I will not want to call it homework, it's a pleasure. So go check it out at ribbonfarm.com. Next week, we'll be back with the author. So you looking forward to it, Ian? Oh, yeah. All right. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.